What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. There's a woman. She... Open the door. It's okay. I, I, I just, I, I want to come inside. She looks hurt. She wants me to let her you in. You can't help her. No one can Okay, I'm not a woman, and I'm not hurt. I'm just terrified. I'm proud of you for going alone to this one, Adam. I made it. John Goodman and Mary Elizabeth Winstead in that clip from 10 Cloverfield Lane, the sort of sequel to the 2008 sci-fi sort of horror movie Cloverfield. Our review, plus our top five Terrence Malick images, and first-round results from Film Spotting Madness. All that and more. Look out behind you, Adam. Not nice, Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. Visit squarespace.com film to start your free trial. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Mubi is proud to present the exclusive online premiere of young director Isaiah Medina's kaleidoscopic first feature. A gorgeous and provocative new kind of digital image-making, Mubi says, breaking rules and inventing its own. The title is 8888, and it explores the challenge and beauty of living in and thinking through our world. Sam Adams over at IndieWire wrote this about 8888. The film itself defies easy description as well as the word film. It doesn't have a narrative or characters, although there are faces we come to recognize over the course of its 65 minutes, but it's not purely abstract either. It's breakneck collage of images and sound, often superimposed over each other, sometimes abruptly cutting off and restarting, is like being dropped into the Snapchat feed of someone you've never met, trying to decipher their life in bursts of a few seconds at a time. It sounds, Josh, both maddening in a way and absolutely enthralling. Based on Sam's description, you can check it out now over at Mubi, where every day their curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. This week, Josh and I make nice with Terrence Malick after failing to be seduced by his latest Night of Cups. Our top five Malick images is later in the show, along with first-round results of Film Spotting Madness, where, spoiler, Malick will have reason to get mad at us and all of you all over again. But first, for a semi-sequel to an alien invasion thriller, 10 Cloverfield Lane makes the unusual choice of going with fewer, not more, aliens. Does the tactic pay off? You were in an accident, and I saved your life by bringing you here. And everyone outside of here is dead. What happened to your arm? Were you trying to escape? I was trying to get in. What was that? Quiet. How do you know that this is real? Imagine for a moment, Adam, that we have a film spotting bunker. 
There's a common area, a well-stocked kitchen, a cooling-off corner where one of us can go whenever the Wolf of Wall Street comes up. (laughs) It's not unlike the bunker that is the central setting of 10 Cloverfield Lane, where a young woman named Michelle, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, wakes up after losing consciousness in a car accident. Her host-slash-captor, Howard, played by John Goodman, tells her that he found her passed out on the side of the road and brought her to his bunker, where they're going to have to stay for a year or more because there's been a large-scale attack and the outside atmosphere is toxic. Now, the veracity of Howard's claims, as well as his true intentions, those form the crux of the film's suspense. To pass the time, Howard has provided magazines, puzzles, board games, and movies on VHS. Pretty in Pink, we learn, is one of the titles Howard has deemed worthy of his bunker. What about 10 Cloverfield Lane, Adam? Which, as we've noted, is something of a sideways sequel to the 2008 alien invasion thriller Cloverfield. It's mostly received praise from critics and audiences alike. But is it good enough, in your mind, to be given valuable space in our hypothetical film spotting bunker? Well, first off, imagining a film spotting bunker where me, you, and Sam just hang out forever <laughs> playing board games and watching movies, that's my favorite pastime. So I can I can map the whole space out for you. I'm sure. Josh, am I going to include 10 Cloverfield Lane? I guess the real question is, do I have to leave out Pretty in Pink or one of the other titles they watch, the lovely titled, and as I learned later, fake Cannibal Airlines. That's why I couldn't find it. It is fake. <laughs> yeah, it's huh? not real. Okay. See, that's the one I would like to take. <laughs> maybe. If I had to leave out those two, maybe I would not bring 10 Cloverfield Lane down. But if I have room on the shelf for another DVD, I'm definitely going to bring 10 Cloverfield Lane. I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. And as you pointed out, we've mentioned a few times already how this isn't really a sequel to Cloverfield, and it really isn't. I don't want to get bogged down in the semantics of sequels as we did with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Sort of Destiny a little bit, but this is a completely separate film with at most some loose connections to the 2008 movie, and whether we're talking about aliens or just monsters, there's no doubt As you pointed out correctly, there are fewer actual monsters in 10 Cloverfield Lane, or there are monsters, they're just human and maybe more psychological in nature. This movie had me, honestly, from the opening sequence. I thought I was watching an update of Psycho with the way that it's wordless. There's no dialogue. It's all about how the camera captures Michelle's actions. That's Mary Elizabeth Winstead as she appears to be upset about something. We're not really sure what. And she's... Loading up seems to be moving out of her apartment. And another way it's Hitchcockian is with the score. Bear McCreary does the score here. Very Very, Hermanesque. It's staccato. It's very prominent in the sound mix. And as I said, no dialogue. So we're just watching her packing up. And we don't know the circumstances. So it forces you right away to look for those clues to try to make sense of this situation based on what we see, what we hear what we feel, really, how we react to just the general mood and the tension. And I think that really does prepare you for the whole movie because it makes you basically as paranoid as she is. And she's paranoid or at least fearful of others before she wakes up in that strange place where she's chained to a bed with a large, creepy man barking orders at her. At one point, she stops for gas and a truck pulls up. Mm -hmm. The way the camera's positioned, we only really hear the truck pull up. I think maybe we catch a glimpse of it in the dark, the front bumper sort of in the frame. But otherwise, we don't get a glimpse of who they are. We have no sense of whether or not they're scary in any way. But the way she considers them, the way that 
Her eyes start shifting around, and the way she hurries out of there suggests that everyone to her on some level is a bit of a threat. And what I like about that, too, is we do get a sense that the truck is big because you're right, right. We can't see the mm-hmm. person, but we see where the headlights are, and they're almost above her little car. That's it. And I like how that foreshadows how Goodman's going to loom over her as well. Absolutely. And speaking of him looming over her... There was a scene I went back and watched today online, the bathroom scene. The first time she goes in to use the bathroom in this bunker, and because... We're going to have to have two bathrooms in our film spotting bunker, by the way. (laughs) We'll see if we can pull that off. I don't know if we've quite got the budget for that. But she goes in, and because she's done something earlier to upset him and suggest that he maybe can't trust her, he's going to stand there while she uses the bathroom, and at most she can pull the curtain for some privacy. She walks in, the camera stops right next to her face in close-up. She's in focus in the foreground. Goodman isn't in focus in the back of the frame. And he's just this menacing presence. And we're stuck right in that space with her, feeling that menacing presence. At a couple points, it does cut to a two-shot, but all that does is really draw attention to that physical space between them and how there isn't that much of it. And I like the little cue at one point then, It cuts to right in front of her, and she looks kind of at the camera as if we're the ones now invading her privacy, and she actually pulls the curtain on us just as she does Goodman. So I think overall, the way the camera maneuvers around that space, the way it clues us into how we're supposed to watch this movie, how it adds to the overall tension of the film, I think it's a key reason why the movie is so effective without really employing any visual gimmicks at all. And that's in contrast, of course, to Cloverfield, a movie I mostly liked, but really was one extended visual gimmick. Yeah, I loved Cloverfield too, but it's, it's you know, just to touch briefly on the sequel thing, it it's not necessary at all to have familiarity with that. And mm-hmm. in fact, perhaps you will enjoy the fog of this a little more if you haven't seen I would Cloverfield. Agree with that. Because I went in, and I'll just say without revealing whether my assumption was correct, assuming that what I had seen in Cloverfield... I could take for granted. Mm-hmm. And so I felt I was and I went in a not few sure. steps so. ahead of her okay. because I considered myself being back in this world. I had more information than she did. Um, that didn't make it less of an experience because, again, the movie's constantly toying with you on this level. Right. But in a way, going in blind uh, is even more fun. This is, this is sure. great fun, mm-hmm. this film, and the way that it plays with you. And you touched on a number of the reasons why I think the Psycho comparison is apt. It's going to be interesting to hear the next Picture Show folks compare Psycho to 10 Cloverfield That's what Lane. they're doing? That's what they're doing. And when I, I first even heard it, I was like, oh, interesting choice. This was before I'd seen the movie. But yeah, from the first five minutes, I'm like, oh, this is this mm-hmm. is why. And so that'll be a lot of fun to hear them dig into it. I, I think that the way Trachtenberg, the director, is using the camera here in terms of Goodman in particular is crucial because not only does he find ways to use his girth to make him imposing, but it's this is vintage Goodman in that that's only half of the performance. The other half is this genial, folksy um, soft-spoken guy because mm-hmm. Howard shifts back and forth. He he has a bit of a temper, but he also shifts back and forth in terms of how much we believe him. For sure. And that changes. Mm-hmm. There are scenes where early on we think he's just a loon, right? And, and he's making everything up. And then there are scenes later where we think, oh, okay, he, he's actually maybe kind of weird, but 
he's on to something here. And Goodman plays us as well because he does, you know, what he did in Barton Fink, for example, or what he's done as Walter Subcheck for what he's done a lot of times for the Coens is vacillate between this potential violence or anger and this folksiness that that he has that's inherent to uh, his physicality and also how he performs his roles. And Trachtenberg will then give us shots of him we're away from him and he's like sitting on the couch and he's, he's sort of cozy. It's like domestic. Yeah. You know, we start to feel like, oh, OK, this is just, you know, a tightly wound guy who's trying to trying to survive this situation. Yeah, And in fact, maybe they'll be the family unit they've all been looking right. for. I love the scenes where they uh, where they tend to settle into that uh-huh. rhythm for a little while. And you do think that you're like, OK, they can wait it out. And then, of course, the movie pulls us in another direction. That's so for me, that's what 10 Cloverfield Lane does absolutely the best is navigate these different genres, fluidly move in and out of them without feeling herky-jerky or that it doesn't know what it's doing. Uh, It's always confident in how it's going to play with us, where it's going to lead us next, how it's going to turn from a psychological thriller to an all-out horror movie. I think it's perhaps a little less successful as a character study. We can get Hmm. to that maybe when we talk some more about the performances. But overall, this is, and here's where it's interesting as a um, a semi-sequel or whatever we're calling it, it, it doesn't behave in any way that you'd expect not only a sequel to an existing franchise or existing property, but just a thriller would behave. And that was the fun to me, is not knowing from moment to moment what kind of movie it was even going to be. You're absolutely right. That is the thrill. And I've seen some people on Letterboxd and elsewhere talk about the ending of the film as if it was a twist. And I said, in order for it to be a twist... Everything's a twist. Yeah, you have to have some expectation of where it should go. Right. And you usually have that with most films because we've seen so many films that fit into certain genres. That's why it's a twist. It upsets your expectations. Here, you don't know what to expect. You Mm -hmm. really are along for the ride the entire time. And I should say, even though we probably don't need to go into great detail and our friends at the next picture show will, the elements of Psycho aren't just that it's dialogue free and that the score is very prominent. But of course, she seems like she's fleeing a crime scene, just like Marion Crane does. She's mm-hmm. not, but there's a lot of guilt there that she exudes. And, of course, getting in her car and driving off, we don't really know where she's going. And ending up with potentially a psychopath is among the similarities to Psycho there. In terms of the character development, actually, Josh, that really worked for me. I thought the movie really managed to balance those thriller aspects and the way it subverted our expectations mm. with the character study to make it better than just your average thriller. Howard, the John Goodman character, at one point has a line that when you first hear it, you feel like it's just one of those kind of comical lines almost because it's him saying, I told you so. He says something like, people never want to think about safety until it's too late, right? And here he is, the guy who is saying, and there seems to be a lot of evidence to suggest that there's been some kind of major apocalypse And they're alive because he was the one man who had the foresight to consider safety. But I really think by the end of the movie, that line is at the heart thematically of the entire film and these characters. Because I do think the movie gets at and that line speaks to the human need to feel like you have to protect yourselves. And I know that sounds obvious, but that can manifest itself in ways that are both healthy and unhealthy. And it isn't just about Howard who gives his life meaning, right, by preparing for the worst case scenario. It's as if he was the only person on the planet. He isolated himself so much and he's not really living his life because he does have this purpose and ultimately 
he's proven to be correct. And I do think you see it with Michelle as well. Her defense mechanism, as we saw early in the film during that psycho like sequence is to run away from any bad situation, to not let herself be mistreated. So she, too, isolates herself completely. The characters in this film all seem full of some regrets because of the choices they've made, but they have those regrets because mostly they've been consumed by being safe. That's been their primary goal is never letting anyone else get to them and never really taking any kind of chances that would put them in a position of weakness. So when you consider all that and then see how the movie does ultimately play out at the end, I think you realize that wasn't just window dressing, that the the writers and, and director here were really trying to explore something fundamentally human. Yeah, especially with a choice she makes at the end, which maybe we'll get into when we talk a little bit of uh, spoiler here at the end. You're right. that That's definitely there. And Michelle even gets a moment of self-reflection where she expresses some of that about a memory she, mm-hmm. she had once. So it's definitely there. And I do, you know, I'll say I do think these are both very good performances. Uh, as I was talking about um, Goodman, he's crucial, not just to the camera placement, but he's crucial to playing us as well. And I think that Winstead is is really good, too. I like she how she balances vulnerability and bravery. And those two kind of are, are constantly changing qualities depending on what she's like facing Goodman, and right? how she She's They're developing. all doing a balancing act here. Yeah, and so so I do I do like the performances. I guess to me is you know I think there's a ceiling to both performances essentially where they're not quite digging as deeply to some of those hints that you're talking about where I felt they moved beyond what the plot mechanics needed them to do. They they had just enough to be more than these ciphers in a situation enough for me to follow them through. But I didn't get a sense of, you know, Winstead's backstory, it felt like sketching to me. Goodman was where I think there was maybe a little bit more of a missed opportunity, and perhaps this is in the screenplay, in giving us a sense of exactly what led Howard in the first place beyond just this this sense of wanting control or wanting to be right or just being paranoid beyond beyond those qualities which we can read on the surface for him um, you know what's really driving this guy and why did he even make these moves and in a way if they had done that that might have added another level of sophistication to 10 Cloverfield Lane in using him as some sort of echo of why society at large feels the need for bunkers or or maybe why is fear a dominant you know theme right now mm-hmm. in culture and why we seem to be going to fear so quickly and easily and creating these mental bunkers. So it's just a little bit of a, an opportunity where I could see the movie could have explored a bit more deeply. And I guess the way to more clearly explain what I'm trying to get at is just to hold up another movie that does this and it's Take Shelter, which we both absolutely love. Mm-hmm. Not fair to compare 10 Cloverfield Lane to Take Shelter, Pretty the different. Jeff yeah. Nichols film. But I think we do see in the Michael Shannon character there how not only is he in a lot of ways facing genre thrills, horror challenges, but they're very reflective of things like what does masculinity mean? What What is he concerned about in terms of fatherhood? How is he handling a loss of control? Right. I mean, those things are just all so vivid in Take Shelter, and we don't quite get that level of detail here. No, we don't. But that really is, at its core, a domestic drama. And this, while it flirts with that a little bit, isn't. This is much more of a high concept. And so... I felt like I tapped in pretty early on to what I was saying in terms of the movie being one that isn't going to give us 
the backstory of these characters. It's just going to throw them into a story. And I tend to be one of those people who more often than not kind of likes that. I, I didn't really want any more than what the movie gave us because I think it fits with this overall narrative where we're always trying to piece together just based on any given moment, what yeah, we see yeah. and what we hear, what's really happening. I agree with that. I, I'm not asking for more explanation. I, I actually think that reflection scene of Michelle's is one of the weaker ones. So hmm. I wouldn't want more of those. It's just a, maybe shading see, I they, or... I thought they balanced that just right. I thought there was just enough backstory and emotion and explanation and inner psychology without giving away the whole farm. And I'm with you overall, the performances, the balance we've been talking about here. There, I think, is the potential for a lot of unintentional comedy in this movie that never really manifests itself. And there are some legit comedic moments that manifest themselves only because the performers are able to draw those out. And what we've been saying in terms of that Goodman character, he definitely comes off, there's no doubt, as a loose cannon. There's something not quite right with the wiring. But whereas he could be seen as purely an evil character, that's not there. Whereas she could be seen as purely a hysterical, vulnerable character, that's not there either. So there is always that balance that the characters and the script, which I should mention Drew Goddard, who did The Cabin in the Woods, directed that. Daniel Casey wrote it. Dan Trachtenberg, a fairly new young director, I think only 34, directed this movie and did it in very assured ways for a relative newcomer. What's the the Howard line at when he goes to the jukebox and wants to put on some music? Something about he loves it when when a plan or preparation all comes together. And something like that. Some, yeah. A lot of good uh, comedic, ironic use of what's on that jukebox for uh, sure. that carries through a number of the funny scenes. That's true. I think we'll probably stop there for now. We want to get into some of the spoiler talk about this movie, and we have a feeling that a lot of you out there have seen this movie and want to reckon with the ending. We're going to do that. So we're going to give you enough advance warning. If you haven't seen 10 Cloverfield Lane yet, this is probably where you do want to move on. And if you're looking to see it, it is out now in wide release. This is my private space. Off limits, unless I give express permission. Go ahead. But I don't need to. You will, though. And I've got to pace these things out, so please. I need privacy. You're welcome to close the curtain. I can't with you standing there. And I can't trust you not to burn this place down. This is for my own safety. I'm not some pervert. Just go. Let's get on now, Josh, to some spoiler talk. There's that word, spoiler. We're going to throw it out there again in case you accidentally bump your iPhone or whatever device you're listening to this on. We had a situation we did for have Star a situation Wars spoiler. With the Force Awakens. One listener did just that, right? Or he left the room or something. Something like that. Came back and there we were just babbling away about <laughs> terrible things that happened to certain characters. This is the spoiler portion. We're going to get to the ending of the film. This conversation actually came out a little bit during a letterbox conversation, people responding to your review, and I couldn't help but chime in a little bit. I guess the obvious place to start is, do you want to set up the ending of the film? Even though anyone listening at this point has seen it, maybe at least just recap what happens at the end of this film when the Michelle character finally does escape Howard's bunker. Yeah, we see the aliens, right? They are aliens. Yeah. I mean, and this is exactly what's from Cloverfield as well. Those, those, a great touch in Cloverfield. I, I really love the original Cloverfield, but where these 
tiny creatures drip off the giant monster. So we get one of these tiny creatures dropped from a spaceship to investigate what's going on because in her escape of the bunker, there's an explosion. So it turns into, you know, kind of a um, woman versus alien. Right. Maybe 10, 15 minute action Mm -hmm. sequence. In order to survive. She's being dragged up. She's in a truck. She's being dragged after up to the hiding, ship. After some hiding, after some War of the Worlds type hiding. Exactly. I mean, and, and she it's all done really well. She basically makes a bomb with a match and a bottle of liquor, and she throws that cocktail into the mouth of the spaceship and manages to actually blow it up, right? I thought it was, I thought it was a blast. I thought and it was great fun. From there, she gets in the car that is sitting there, starts to drive off gets a signal on the radio, hears some voices that are throwing out kind of a distress signal to anyone who might be listening, any humans out there. And I can't remember the exact location. It's Houston, and then is it north of Baton Rouge? Because this takes place in Louisiana. Louisiana. I think it's just something like there is safety. You can come kind of hang out with us north of Baton Rouge or somewhere like that. Or we're looking for people who are ready for some combat to fight these aliens. you got to go to Houston. And as they're saying that, she conveniently has a turn to make. She can either go to Baton Rouge, or she can go yeah, fight to Houston. Flight. So that's the end of the film. She makes the decision to go to Houston. You've suggested you were a fan overall of this ending. Why? Yeah, I just, again, because here it's taking another left turn that maybe I thought we're going to get a glimpse of the aliens and then the movie would end. But I did not expect this commitment to this sort of extended action scene climax. Right. And I just love that the movie not only decided to do that, but committed to it and went so hard with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it's really well staged and a lot of fun, too. So I, I also like the costume detail where she she dons this. She was making out of a shower curtain, mm-hmm. this protective outfit, almost hazmat like suit. a hazmat suit and uh, with a mask and everything. And she ends up looking. It's gold and maroon like a superhero. Right. True. She burst a little bit of Iron of this, Man. Yeah. Out of this bunker. So I liked that touch. And yeah, again, my favorite thing about 10 Cloverfield Lane is the U-turns veering odd directions. It not only went in, but did well and stuck with. And this was just a great capper. For yeah, that. I'm with you completely. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And for the reasons you said, including that it commits to it, I liked it because it was surprising without, to me at all, being a kind of gotcha twist ending, as we already talked about. By the end, and I should point out here that I was not thinking about Cloverfield at all. I'm with you that if people are out there listening to this, and at this point, I guess it's irrelevant because they've seen it already. But for the people who hadn't seen Cloverfield first, you're right that going in with no knowledge of aliens whatsoever will make this more fun. Now, even though I had seen Cloverfield, that doesn't mean I really thought it was going to tie back into that film Mm. directly. I didn't know what connection they might make between the two movies. So I was just going to go with it and see where it took me. And I'll be honest, I didn't really consider aliens. Every time Howard said something like, it's probably extraterrestrial, I just thought really? of him. You no, know, I just thought of him even more. I'm not that bright, Josh. I, I didn't want to believe it because okay. I'm a skeptical human being. Like, I was so grounded in her reality that I was like, okay, anything could have happened. I'm not going to buy. The last thing I'm going to buy is that aliens came down. But the fact that the movie goes there, again, surprised me, but not in a shocking kind of way. It actually then kind of seemed, oh, of course, that's where it's going to go. And I like that it did. You know at some point that Howard isn't completely crazy. Mm-hmm. He is on to something. Something went when wrong. When we see the woman who when we tries see the to woman. get into the bunker. Right. And even the fact that 
the other character who we managed to avoid talking about at all for spoiler purposes to an extent during the main part of this review, Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr. I think he's really good in this movie. The fact that he's there, too, lends some credence to something went down. Right. You know, and so we know he's not crazy. What could it be? But the fact that it goes with the most absurd of all scenarios <laughs> and commits to it, I think, is laudable. You know what is also really great about it, though, is – and here there's an echo of Take Shelter. I don't know if we want to spoil that ending either. But it's one of these both-can-be-true scenarios. So much of 10 Cloverfield Lane, we're thinking, okay, either Howard is crazy and he's a killer yeah. and there's no aliens – or there are aliens and he's just a slightly strange guy who's, you know, at right. least protecting her for the moment. Well, no, he's a crazy killer. Yeah. And there are, that's, what, know. that's what I love. Right. The fact that it managed to deliver on both of those. And, and I think it does deliver. Yeah, and the whole time we're thinking that they have to be exclusive and exactly. they're not. And so that's really good. But for me as well, why I like the ending quite a bit is that it ties up the character arc mm-hmm. of Michelle. I think that if there had been a more ambiguous ending where there's some kind of attack, maybe we glimpse an alien ship or something, but we don't really know what happened. I think that would have felt a little bit like a cop out to me, honestly, that the movie didn't yeah, I can fully see that. And that cop out, I might have been able to justify intellectually because we all like some ambiguity. The fact that it'll make us think as we walk out of the theater, but only if it really still managed to be as functional in terms of Michelle's character arc. I don't think it would have been, though, and the reason I don't think so is because the ending we get nails it. As I talked about, Michelle is a character who runs, right? That's what she does. Whenever there is any sign of trouble in her life, she flees instead of fights. This is going to all sound probably pretty obvious, but I'm going to argue it nevertheless because there are some people out there I know who really feel like the movie just could have ended instead of having all those action scenes. We didn't need to see her fight the aliens. That's just gratuitous action stuff, whatever. I don't agree with that at all. I think while some might try to argue that she sort of completes her arc already, she has a reversal, if you will, simply by fighting Howard to escape. I don't agree just because in that case, that's just more about survival instinct than anything. She's not really making a choice at that point. And she's not just running from a relationship that got difficult or something. She knows what Howard is capable of, what he's done in the past with young women, and that she'd be living in fear every day for the rest of her time there. So she really doesn't have a choice but to try to get out. The ending that we get shows us that she does have that choice to make, to go north or to go to Houston. She can basically hide out in that safe zone or fight the aliens. And my response to anyone saying that she didn't need to go through that action stuff is that the radio call mentions specifically looking for people with military training. Yeah. And making a hazmat suit and getting away from Howard required a lot of skill and ingenuity and toughness, but I wouldn't equate it with being a resistance fighter who is literally going to attack or defend against aliens. But it's her success in making that bomb, in bringing the ship down, and her also just surviving, that tells her she might be equipped to handle herself in that type of combat. I don't think that if she had just escaped from Howard, that alone would tell her that. So that all makes her choice matter. You somehow survive the trauma of escaping Howard's bunker. You could easily be justified for falling back into your usual pattern and say, I'm going to take the easiest path possible. I have earned the right to flee to safety and let other people fight for me. But now that she sees what she's capable of, that she could be of value to the resistance, and she chooses not to flee but to fight, that's how you know 
that's how you know she really has changed as a character. She doesn't fall back on that pattern. She considers all the factors. She chooses to fight head on. I think it all culminates in that end decision. But we wouldn't get there. It wouldn't really have the impact it has if we didn't see her fight those aliens and be successful at it. Yeah, it it puts a nice bow on it. And it also conveniently sets up Houston Cloverfield or whatever whatever they're going to call it. Good point. However, they're going to move this thing along. From a thematic and from a marketing standpoint, (laughs) it's successful. Probably we're just bringing up here briefly as we close out. I was looking for that line today that Howard says about safety. I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. and in Googling that I wasn't successful. But in Googling it, I saw a headline for an article that argues that Howard is actually the victim of the movie. Hmm. And I'll link to it in the show notes if people want to check it out. It's compelling enough and well-argued. And there are elements that even right here, without the article in front of us, we could see he's a man of— Well, you do feel— He's a practical man, and he is correct about the situation. So you have to respect that on a certain level. And maybe this is what I was getting at when I I felt like there was just a little bit more about him the movie could have given us because Mm -hmm. you do feel sympathy for him too as well. I mean, for one thing, the guy's disturbed, Mm -hmm. clearly. And this is how he's managed to control his world. Now, he's taken that into like extreme direction in the kidnapping of another young woman that we learned about earlier. But even during the time in the bunker, you feel a little badly for him. And I got to say, as odd as it is, like, I kind of missed him during that last 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, You know, it was bit. like, oh, that was, well, John Goodman's gone now. Maybe that's why people don't like the finale, because there was something he <laughs> brought to the film as horrific as the character is in terms of the actions mm-hmm. he takes, you know, that you do have some sort of affinity to him, which I think, you know, ultimately does speak to the how good the performance is, too. I think the linchpin of any argument, though, the question or questions you have to ask yourself, and I'm going to pose them to you because... I don't know the answers, and I'm curious if you're going to weigh whether or not he's really the victim in any way or how much you sympathize with him. And the key to the argument is it says not only is he just a practical guy and you'd be like him, too. You would act like him, too, if these other people were in there not Mm -hmm. following your rules and putting your life in danger, all that stuff. But the argument is that that crime from his past— where he did they have the proof clearly kidnapped someone it's not even that this person actually argues that what we see in the movie is actually evidence of him trying to atone for that mm. that he saved her and that he saved the other character Emmett because he's trying to atone in some way for that so then i come back to do we believe his story to her that he did just accidentally hit her and he saw her go down into the ravine or whatever, and then saved her. He said, I'm going to save this woman's life. Maybe he is trying to atone. In some way, he's trying to now be a better person. And he goes and gets her. Or or did he purposefully hit her, which I think is the implication most of us probably have right. after we learn that he kidnapped a girl and probably murdered her? Did he purposefully hit her because... What he was really doing was looking to capture another girl. That's also which is it? Right. Well, it's also how it's filmed. I mean, it's filmed it how as it's filmed. a purposeful hit. I don't know if there's a ton of evidence in the movie itself for that reading. I'd, I'd have to, you know, watch it again closely with that in mind. But uh, that that's a that's a bit of a stretch. We don't know though. We don't know. There is some. Well, I was gonna there. I was gonna go along the lines of could it be possible that and this ties into the the paranoia that's at play in this film. Could it be possible that Michelle and Emmett? have jumped to conclusions about what he did to Absolutely. the other girl. I mean, there's the there's the scratching and there's the ear matching. But do you consider that, con- you know, right. 
proof. Yeah. Absolute proof to the point that you will kill him. Right. But then I think then the other thing you have to throw in is if they weren't 100% sure, the fact that he shoots Emmett at point blank range and then puts him in a vat of acid. At that point, at that point, you're probably <laughs> Suggest okay there's something really doing wrong. whatever you need to yeah, get out of there. <laughs> to get out of there. Yes. But, but I will say this article basically suggests that his response to what Emmett says mm-hmm. is more of a practical kind of response and about protecting clearly, their environment. They're clearly up to something behind his back. Right. And yeah. He, yeah. he takes him at face value and he believes him when he says that I was trying to get your gun. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to protect mm-hmm. Michelle. I'm going to protect myself. He has to be gotten rid of. But still, what he does is so, so ugly and wrong yeah. and immoral yeah. that we, of course, view him that way. So I don't know. It's fun stuff to consider. If you've seen 10 Cloverfield Lane and if you're still listening, we assume you have. We want to know what you think. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net. So I figured out how we'd really pass the time in the film spotting bunker, Adam. Hit me. We'll Skype in Sam and we'll just plan the next 10 years of film spotting madness. <laughs> That's totally what we'd be doing. We're in the midst of this year's edition, pitting our favorite directors against each other. And we have first round results next. Stay with us. Folks, a quick reminder that Film Spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. From the strange to the downright bizarre, great stories define us. You should tell yours with simple tools and templates. Squarespace helps you capture your story with a captivating website. Start your free trial today. Just visit squarespace.com film. And Josh, while we're waiting for a few more listeners to write in and share their websites that they've built for their podcast or their business, whatever it might be, their hobby, I wanted to feature a podcast and a website here and recommend them that we've recommended several times before over the past few months. But Karina Longworth and her great podcast, You Must Remember This, the podcast that looks back at stories from the golden age of Hollywood, if you will, her current season is about The Blacklist. And I just listened today, actually, to an episode called The Strange Love of Barbara Stanwyck about Robert Taylor. It's episode number five from this season about The Blacklist that came out on March 7th. If you go to Karina's website, you must remember this podcast.com, you'll not only see the sleek design, and she's talked about on the show how she didn't really know anything at all about web design, but Squarespace made it so easy for her. But she also features interesting notes and her sources for a lot of the information she shares on the show and some interesting photos as well. So it was fun for me today putting these notes together to go back and look at that after listening to the show and being able to see what Robert Taylor looked like since everybody was talking about how attractive he was and seeing some shots of him and Barbara Stanwyck together. It's a nice resource to support 
her great podcast. I'm a little bit behind you. I'm still finishing up the MGM Stories season. Okay. I, I hate breaking these up, so mm-hmm. I save them for when I have a, a pretty decent drive ahead of me and listen to it all in one shot. Got it. Yeah, if you have a website or a podcast like Karina's and you need a website, visit squarespace.com film. Squarespace, you should. human race and if we believe there's even a one percent chance that he is our enemy we have to take it as an absolute certainty and we have to destroy him but he is not our enemy not today 20 years in gotham alfred we've seen what promises are worth super rich gotham city personality wants to take extreme measures to deal with alleged threat from a legal alien listen as i make no reference to anyone currently running for president of the united states welcome back to film spotting a clip there from batman v superman dawn of justice which of course opens this weekend and which guest host chris Clemick and i will review on next week's show josh how is it that you managed to schedule a vacation the week we were going to review this movie. I'm sure you're just just really bummed about it. I'm going to see this anyway. I'm going tomorrow night. I'm mildly intrigued. Okay. Did not care for the last Superman movie very much at all, mm-hmm. as I don't I don't think anybody really did. But um yeah, we'll see what's going on here. And maybe I'll throw some top five suggestions at you Please, guys we need after them. I've seen it. Yeah. Um if there's something that strikes me as a good topic. So yeah, I think uh, obviously Chris is gonna be great to review this film so you guys will have fun i'll weigh in when i get back spring break in dc of course that's where everybody else have goes fun for spring break yeah. right <laughs> very exotic josh Klimek was the obvious choice because of his background with these types of films and also because as we've noted when he's been on the show before he really does look like superman it's true so this is not just batman v superman it is kempinar v Klimek, and he's superman and i of course am really at night a vigilante. So it works, Josh. It's just going to work. And to start things off before we even get into the review, just to show that I'm already in the wrong mindset for this movie, mm-hmm. can I pose a serious question about the clip we just heard? Sure. You're so, you know, you're I so love it when you right bring now. such disdain to, <laughs> that's to not movies it. in advance. No, no, that's really not it. I'm just asking a legitimate okay. question. That what, was, what was your question on Twitter as well? Speaking of not having disdain. I don't remember. Didn't you put some sort of poll up about how? I was trying to decide whether or not. I was curious what people would say, whether or not, since this really is a sequel. It is. Here we go again. This is directly following events that occurred in Man of Steel. I wanted to know if the Twitter sphere thought that I needed to watch Man of Steel. Because you've never seen it? No. Two-thirds to one-third said I did not need to see it. But then I actually got bored about midnight on Friday night, and I didn't want to wade into a movie that I felt like I was going to have to really wrestle with. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, there it is on demand. I'm going to watch it. And guess what? It's not good. (laughs) It really isn't good. You didn't miss nuances because you were falling asleep? Maybe. Maybe. No, you didn't. You didn't. It has some elements I did like. It has many more elements I didn't like. But here's my question, going back to that Mm -hmm. clip where we heard Ben Affleck. If Superman is capable of destroying the entire planet, and that 1% chance makes it so we have to get rid of him, Mm -hmm. if you're powerful enough... To get rid of the person who's powerful enough to destroy the entire planet, doesn't that also make you powerful enough to destroy the entire planet? And aren't you, in fact, an even bigger threat? Well, you are powerful enough to just make me feel like I'm 11 again. (laughs) Good. With that question. Good. 
Um, yes, but I think the the crux of this movie is going to be, is Batman powerful enough, Adam? Well, I'm not buying it. I'm a Superman guy. I always was growing oh, up. Oh, of course you would he's be. He's from another this planet. This is why he's so boring. He's from another planet. This is Bruce Wayne. He's just a guy. This this is no question. That's why it's boring. <laughs> I agree with you. Okay. I agree with you. But we're going to see it, and I'm going to wrestle with these deep, <laughs> deep existential questions Good luck. next week on the show with Chris Klemek. Movies that are a little bit more my speed, if we're going to... Talk about some of those coming out in the near future. Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some, the spiritual sequel. Here we go with that sequel word again. Today's Dazed and Confused. It opens April 1st here in Chicago. This coming Monday night, March 28th, there's going to be an advanced screening. I love giving away free passes to movies here in Chicago. I love giving away free passes to movies that we really want to see, that our listeners really want to see. And if you want to see it early on Monday the 28th, you can just go to filmspotting.net. There's a link right there in the top stories to enter. Do I still get to see this even though I voted against him in Film Spotting Madness? No. I, am I banned? No. You, you have given up that right after going against Richard Linklater. We will get to that vote and many others in Film Spotting Madness here in just a bit. But first, we do have a little bit of Massacre Theater. We're not going to devote our normal segment to it where we act poorly and have you guess which scene but as we did do massacre theater a couple weeks ago we felt like we had to at least announce the winner and give out a free film spotting t-shirt during this film spotting madness month here we're going to just focus on that in these segments and not play massacre theater but it'll return very soon massacre theater the part of the show where we usually perform a scene you get a chance at winning a prize a couple weeks back adam and i massacred this exactly what the hell is the situation what did you yourself or something oh i wish I got it stuck. You got what stuck? It. Oh! It, um, um, uh, well, uh, listen, uh, it's not the end of the world. Uh, these kind of things happen. Uh, uh, let's have a look at it. No, oh, for God never say Shh! Shh! Sheila! No! Sheila, uh, no, honey? Don't. Sheila, honey, uh, uh. You got to come here. You got you, you to gotta see this. That was Keith David, who we learned is Adam's acting alter ego, apparently, apparently, as Mary's dad and Ben Stiller as Ted in 1998's There's Something About Mary, written directed by Bobby and Peter Farrelly. We heard from Julio Oliveira in Austin, Texas. Come on, guys. This was too easy, especially considering I've been joking about watching the Farrelly Brothers Heartbreak Kid to prepare for your Elaine May marathon. Ben Stiller played the Charles Grodin character then, and in your massacred scene from There's Something About Mary, another Farrelly's joint, he played the poor guy who gets the pork and the beans stuck in his zipper. I wish you guys had gone on for longer, but I guess you would have needed more people. Maybe you should have saved this one for one of those times when you have Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson around. What do you think of the Farrelly's Heartbreak remake anyway? So this is really a question more for you, Julio. Many listeners correct. That was the tie-in a couple weeks back. We talked about Elaine Mays. The Heartbreak Kid from 1972 and The Farrelly's did indeed remake that movie. I have not seen it, though it's been on HBO lately, coincidentally in line with our Elaine May Marathon. And just out of some morbid curiosity, I've watched about 10 minutes of it. That's all you could take? Oh, no, I, I, I have to turn the channel pretty quickly. Is the whole thing that bad, Josh? I, I, I try not to think about it anymore. Beyond the 80-whatever minutes I gave to it, 
that was enough. Hmm. Stephen Cohen in Los Angeles, California, said another cool connection that I couldn't stop thinking about while watching May's original version is that Stiller and Charles Grodin were both in one of Adam's favorite movies of last year, which I won't name for Josh's sake. In that picture, they also play men who are probably more similar than they would like to admit, though only Stiller's character is as self-destructive as Lenny seems to be in The Heartbreak Kid. Perhaps Grodin's Maisel's-inspired character learned from his mistakes in a previous life. Keep on watching in the free world. Thank you very much, Stephen, Julio, everyone who entered Masker Theater. I will name the movie because more people need to see it while we're young from last year, Josh. It's not like it causes me physical pain or anything. I'm not I sure was, about that. I was mildly <laughs> negative on the movie, but... <laughs> That's no fun. We have to keep up illusions here, Josh, okay. that we're really at each other's throats all the time. Why don't you reach into the film spotting hat? Pretty brimming. A lot of people recognized there's something about Mary. I think it was probably due to our dead-on performances. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Justin Sims from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Congratulations, Justin. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Massacre Theater, as we said, will return soon. Let's get to why we're all really here, though, Josh. Film Spotting Madness. And if you're new to the show or missed last week's show, we'll set it up for you again here briefly. The criteria for our director's bracket. We started with 32 currently active Film Spotting favorite directors. Only one will live to direct another day. While, of course, we're keeping in mind the director's previous work, that's what influences our perception of them as filmmakers, the vote is really more about our interest in them and their future work. So imagine the scenario. I know Sam abides by this just as I do. Josh, I don't know if you apply it as well, but especially when there's a really tough choice to make between two directors, I just imagine myself walking into a theater. There are only two screens. I can only see one of the movies playing, and I probably won't get to see the other movie. For whatever reason, it's going to disappear for all time, and all I know is one was made by Director A and the other was made by Director B. That's it. Which one do I go into just based on the director? That still doesn't always make it easy, but that is my little tiebreaker sometimes with these death matches. Yeah, I've been using that too. Whoever came up with that, that's perfect because you just need that Give me a straight answer yeah, right away. Gut Instinctual instinct. pick. And um, sometimes you might still get it wrong. But, hey, you've got something to use. That's it. And we'll go ahead and note the URL one more time. If you're listening out there, you're actually in front of a computer, you want to look at the bracket here as we go through the results. It's challenge.com slash fsmadness2016. And that's challenge with an O, C-H-A-L-L-O-N-G-E dot com slash fsmadness2016. Couple notes on the first round as we get into the results. 32 directors, so 16 matchups here in the first round. There were only four upsets. Now, what does that mean? Well, you don't see the seeds, but behind the scenes, there were copious amounts of conversation about how we should seed these directors based on our expert opinion mm -hmm. as to how we thought Film Spotting You're Nation this sound very professional. would vote. There was nothing professional about it, <laughs> oh. would vote for these filmmakers. So it's probably not hard to assume that in a matchup of Quentin Tarantino versus Sarah Pauly, which we'll get into in a minute, Tarantino is the higher seed. Yes. Bigger body of work, more esteemed, more fans of Tarantino's work than Sarah Pauly. So there was a ranking system here to these matchups. And yeah, in the end, it should ideally get down to the top two filmmakers, meaning the two filmmakers that listeners appreciate the most, they're not going to accidentally in the first round face each other and be eliminated. It's going to get to them maybe at the end. Now, we have a perception of who those top two or four seeds are, but that doesn't mean we're right. We'll see how it goes. Again, though, only four upsets so far and lots of decisive 
wins. I don't think that should necessarily suggest that the voting was easy for everybody. We saw our share of comments on Twitter just like last year when we did this with actors and actresses along the lines of you're evil. We caused a lot of pain. Yeah, we caused a lot of pain. So despite the decisiveness of some of the victories, there were some hard choices. And speaking of hard choices, oh, man. Things are going to get real in round two. We'll get to those matchups here as well as we announce the results. So we start with matchup one of Film Spotting Madness. Duncan Jones, who won surprisingly the play-in match, the director of Moon and the upcoming Warcraft. Josh, is that what the movie's called? I think it's called Warcraft. Also made Source Code. We're fans of his work. Moon was our inaugural Golden Brick winner. He had to go up against a buzzsaw, though, in Paul Thomas Anderson. We heard from C.B. Shama speaking for all but a few of us, it turns out, who said no contest, PTA all the way. Bob Castle, I think he was speaking just for Bob Castle here. He said, (laughs) I saw There Will Be Blood on the big screen was taken aback by the greatness of that movie. I saw Moon on a broken DVD that I couldn't finish. So my vote still goes to PTA. (laughs) The results then. Turns out, Josh, the second biggest defeat Hmm. in the first round of Film Spotting Madness. How did it come out? PTA over Jones, 90% to 10%. 90 to 10. That brings us to matchup number two, Alfonso Coron versus Spike Jones. Gabe said the single hardest matchup in the entire tournament. Itumama Tambien, Children of Men, Gravity versus Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Her. I think it's got to be Quran for me, simply because, as the more technically ambitious of the two, I'll always be excited to see what he tries to pull off next, even if Jones has made films that are far more interesting and idiosyncratic. James Locke wrote in, Her adaptation, Malkovich, Jones's films are so dense with ideas and emotions that I don't think many other directors can match, and he keeps getting better. Do not rob the world of Spike Jones's future films. Also, what other director in this tournament can give you the possibility of directing sweet skateboard videos? Only Jones can. Do not rob the world of Spike Jones's sweet skateboard videos. <laughs> to be clear, all those sweet skateboard videos, they still exist, right? We're not wiping out past work. No, when but... a director gets... You never knows? get a future sweet skateboard video. That's it. I see. That, that's James' concern. Yeah, you okay. never know. Jake Bart said, where the wild things are is the difference maker for me here. I think Quaran's an immensely talented filmmaker, but he hasn't made any as singular as Jones did with that film. This is my regret. That's your regret. This is, this is my misvote. Okay, so to recap real quick, we both picked Paul Thomas Anderson over Duncan Jones yes. as our listeners. Yes. Did. That was our vote. In this matchup, Quaran versus Jones, I went with Spike Jones. I think you did say on last week's show you were going Quran. Are you go, changing your I mind? Did, I did go Quran. Okay. And I have deep regret over it. And I hate this whole tournament now. <laughs> Are you saying you're changing your vote? I can't. It's too late. <laughs> well, when you actually went to our website and voted, which surely you did. Oh, yeah, I did. No, I voted Quran. This, this is what I'm saying. So what made you regret it? Where the wild things are. But did that just occur to you or did you read listener comments like the one from Jake? No, I thought about it. It's just this is what happens when you make that choice and and it's final. I don't know. Are you going back and voting multiple times so no. you feel good about all your votes? Well, I, I do have multiple <laughs> devices. <laughs> yeah, okay. I see how this is working. But I, I voted the same each time. I just uh, I, I, I should have gone for Jones. Okay. Jake is right. And that's where our listeners went. Spike Jones with the upset, one of the four upsets against the higher-seeded Quran, 57% to 43%. That means that our first round two matchup, Spike Jones versus Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm. Where are you going, Josh? I, I've got to go PTA. Really? I mean, yeah, I do. Even though You're I'd not like going to regret make, it later? I'd like to make up for my mistake. No, I think this is, I think this is solid. It's an unfortunate choice, but I think it's a solid one to make. Yeah, PTA gets my vote as well. 
even though I can't stand the thought of not seeing another Spike Jones movie. Or sweet skateboarding video. <laughs> Absolutely. Our third matchup, Spike Lee versus Steven Spielberg. Two kind of old guard directors at this point. Spielberg, obviously, a little more old guard. Henrik Hansen wrote in, only one survives to direct another film. But what if that film turns out to be Indy 5? I still voted for Spielberg, but I feel a little guilty about it. Are you more excited, Adam, for Indy 5 than for Batman v Superman, at least? I don't think so. Come on. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it is indie. It's Harrison Ford. <laughs> You've got a few years. That's to think my about childhood. It. A little bit more than Batman v Superman, even though I watched Superman the movie probably 200 times when mm. I was a kid. Oh, that's where the love comes from. Yeah. Todd Stevens also wrote in, I think this is the toughest question in the poll, close enough that it's really the only one where I had to rely on the actual language of film spotting madness to decide. I think Spielberg is the overall better filmmaker of the two, and I think were he to be the lone surviving champion, he would have higher quality output than Lee going forward. But Lee is just so unique and singular that I feel I'd be more sad to lose his future movies than Spielberg's. We've seen people make films in Spielberg's style for decades, many times resulting in shallow imitations, but often resulting in great success. There isn't really anybody who can come close to replicating Lee, and I think the film landscape would seriously suffer without his voice, so I had to give him my vote. A very compelling argument there from Todd. I believe I went with Spielberg. I think you went with Spike Lee. Is that correct? I did go with Lee. Especially and, following Chirac. Yeah, and, and Todd gave much better reasons than I mumbled, too. I mean, that is a <laughs> well, great— standard for our listeners. <laughs> with both true, of us. true. That is a great case. Unfortunately, it didn't help Spike out. It did not help Spielberg over Spike Lee. 79% to 21%. Matchup number four, Michael Mann versus— Christopher Nolan. I love this matchup. Again, random based on the seating, but I love this first round matchup just because they strike me in some way as not similar filmmakers, but I feel like their fans are similar fans of their work. I feel like there's a lot of crossover Mm -hmm. there. And I feel like it was probably a tough choice. Chris Massa, get used to that name, wrote in, Michael Mann's films are incredibly well-crafted, but frequently leave me a little bit cold. While Nolan's are big, bloated, and noisy, but they never fail to move me to my core. My head says man. My heart says Nolan. Oh, well, Nolan it is. And Nolan it was. He beat man 77% to 23%. I thought that would be closer. A little head versus heart argument there in man and Nolan probably works for those two filmmakers. On a really basic level, I think man is a little bit colder and a little bit more intellectual than Nolan, despite his films also going in some profound directions. That means our next round two matchup is... Christopher Nolan versus Steven Spielberg. Nolan. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's Nolan. Even after Interstellar, you're going Nolan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Interstellar is another one where, you know, I had significant issues with, but by no means thought was a disaster. Yeah. And you just, you love so much that there's the perception of this wide split in between us. Right. But Nolan is, it's a stage. And I just saw it again at the music you box did. at 70 mil. And I would have loved to. It worked like gangbusters yeah. just like it did the first time. So. I would have loved to have done that. Uh, it's also a stage of career thing too for these two when you pair them. Maybe that's a bit of unfairness in how these things sometimes shake out is that Nolan clearly has mm. a number of really tantalizing projects up ahead. Spielberg, I'm sure he's got a handful. He's got Indy 5. Yep. But I don't know how much more beyond that. Matchup number five, Quentin Tarantino versus Sarah Pauly. Evan Wilcox said, I can't wait to see what Sarah Pauly does next. I'm not sure Tarantino has any surprises left. He'll tweak around in his increasingly nasty sandbox. And I mean that nicely because he's a genius. But she'll do something that'll remind me I'm a human being. 
So, Polly. Wow. That's always nice. Spoken like a really thoughtful Grinnell College graduate. Thank you, Evan. Cody Winfrey wrote in, he's a number one seed for a reason. The man whose every film spawns a thousand think pieces and a dozen separate film sites to rank his filmography. I doubt any other director on this list would receive the coverage and discussion he did for announcing that they wouldn't make a film as he did with The Hateful Eight. Most listeners, Josh more with Cody, it seems. Yeah, this was a bit of a trouncing. Tarantino won it with 80% of the vote. Mm -hmm. Ryan Johnson, matchup number six, our guy. The Golden Brick is named after his film Brick. He went up against an all-timer in Wong Kar Wai here in round one, and yet Ryan Johnson actually was the higher seed, just based on our perception of how, again, we thought listeners would vote, and Lauren Bycroft wrote, I might need a long, perfectly scored walk in the rain to work out all the feels I have about this pairing. Ryan Johnson and Wong Kar Wai, seeing their names together like that just seems to violate all sorts of laws of nature. Damn it, you guys. Johnson made Brick. Brick. He's directing episode eight. Wong Kar Wai made In the Mood for Love. I can't choose between the hypothetical masterpiece of episode eight and the actual masterpiece of In the Mood for Love. You monsters. <laughs> Rob applied some cold logic to this. He said, I know I shouldn't see it this way, but this just comes down to, do you want to see Star Wars episode eight? And the answer is, you bet your ass I do. <laughs> Sam was very worried about that. Of course, our co-producer worried that that would be the deciding factor in the Ryan Johnson vote. And maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't because this is really close, which maybe speaks more to the fact that Wong Kar Wai is just that revered of a filmmaker. Ryan wins it, though, 59% to 41%. And oh, my God, I have to choose this round two matchup, yeah. Ryan Johnson gonna, versus Quentin Tarantino. Gonna be really we are painful. monsters. <laughs> Who made this terrible, terrible bracket? I'm throwing this away. I'm done. I'm no, done with Film Spotting no. Madness. See, this, I mean, I know how you're voting. This is If I voted but against I don't care. Tarantino for Polly, I'm definitely voting against him to go with Ryan Johnson. This yeah. is easy. Oh, man. You, and you know it's the right thing to do, Adam. Come on, let it go. Let the Tarantino thing go. If you're ever going to do it, if Hateful Eight <laughs> didn't convince you to do it, do it now. Move on. It might be because despite how much I love The Hateful Eight, and, and I don't love it as much as Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained, but as much as I have enjoyed his past three movies and all of his films that he's made, yes, including Death Proof, I'm probably with Evan that I expect fewer surprises. And even taking Star Wars out of the equation, I don't know where Ryan Johnson's going to go. And I feel like he's still got a lot of evolving to do as a filmmaker, and he's already a pretty formidable one. I can't believe I've talked myself into Ryan Johnson. Maybe it's because I've never had breakfast with Quentin Tarantino before. <laughs> like, I might just be personally biased here that Ryan's such a good guy who has actually sat across from me and co-hosted this show before. That probably has something to do with it, but I think you also did hit on a great point. I would, well, obviously I would vote this way even without Star Wars Episode Eight, but there is so much more to what Johnson will be able to do beyond that movie for me, based on his other films. That that that's good reasoning. I think hmm. I think you've. I was due. Yeah, I, this <laughs> makes me so happy. <laughs> I can't wait to see the results because we know there are a lot of Tarantino fans out oh, there. Yeah. Oh yeah. You would think he would dominate over just about anybody, but Ryan Johnson is one of those guys who has a deep connection to this show, and our listeners was. They're on the big screen, right, as an interview at our 500th show. So we will see. We will see. Scott! Evil X! Fight! Hey, remember, you really think you'll stand a chance against an A-lister, bro? 
some competition you are. Matchup number seven. Martin Scorsese versus Edgar Wright. Our friend Jason Eakin from L.A. wrote in. This one is brutal, but I have to go with the master. Scorsese, higher highs and more of them. And he has barely just enough life left in him to give us four to five more movies and at least one masterpiece, which might come this year. Edgar Wright doesn't make movies nearly as often. And, well, he's going to lose this one all day long on the grounds that he happens to not be Martin Scorsese. Two to three years from now, he might win this one but not quite yet. V.V. Lorty wrote in to say Scorsese has given us some brilliant movies, but going by the criteria of who I want to continue making movies, I have to go with Wright. If Scorsese never made another movie, his legacy would be towering. If Wright never made another movie, I'd feel cheated. Mm. In the minority, V.V. Scorsese wins 68% to Edgar Wright's 32%. Matchup number eight. This was one of the tough ones for me. We talked about it on the show when we revealed this pairing. Todd Haynes versus another film-spotting guy, Jeff Nichols. Nicole in San Francisco said, This one is the sophiest of all 2016 film-spotting madness choices for me. Take Shelter is my number one film-spotting discovery. I jumped to Nichols' other work, and I love all of it, and I cannot wait for Midnight Special. But Haynes transfixes me. Seek out superstar Haynes' Barbie doll adaptation of the Karen Carpenter story, and I guarantee you won't be able to look away. Far from heaven, I'm not there, Mildred Pierce. I cannot look away from anything that Haynes creates. So even though it kills me, Haynes moves on. Forgive me, Jeff. I think I mentioned the Karen Carpenter movie Superstar as an honorable mention. Top five films of 86 or whatever year it came out almost made my top five. It's really that good. It's available on YouTube. Chris Massa, again, I have a lot of respect for Todd Haynes and he's making amazing movies, but nothing he's done has hit me in the gut as hard as Take Shelter, Shotgun Stories, and to a lesser extent, Mud. And I can't wait to see Midnight Special. Jeff Nichols, all the way. Gunner has a vote for Haynes here. Though Nichols has made a string of very good movies, he is still relatively new to the game and has yet to find a clear directorial style. Haynes, on the other hand, is a pioneer of new queer cinema and 90s independent cinema in general, and has provided a number of masterpieces over the past 30 years. Nichols' small-scale thrillers have shown increasing competence. However, none have yet matched the assurance and power of Haynes' two crowning achievements, 2015's Subtle and Crushing Carol or 1995's Decade-Defining Safe. Mm. All those reasons are exactly why this was a really, really hard matchup. I believe, though, we both sided with Jeff Nichols. Right, Josh? We did, and I'm feeling a little bit of regret after, <laughs> after hearing that response. Well, too. regret it not. Film spotting listeners behind us, 59% okay. Jeff Nichols wins, and that was another upset. Haynes, just by virtue of being Todd Haynes and being around a little bit longer and Nichols being more of an up-and-comer, Nichols was the underdog in this one, but he takes it 59-41. to 41. That means the round two matchup, the underdog is going to face the legend. Jeff Nichols versus Martin Scorsese. This is the harder one than picking Scorsese over Edgar Wright for me. Okay. Um, But I think I still have to stick with him. I got to stick with Scorsese. You do? I do. Yeah. Your your face is like just distress here. I'm going to Nichols. I'm going with Nichols and I'm moving on. I'm just going to move on and not think about it anymore because it makes me feel weird. Number nine, matchup number nine, Wes Anderson versus Charlie Kaufman. Josh's boy, Wes oh, Anderson. I was a little nervous about this Versus one. Charlie Kaufman. I was not nervous. John D. Cesaro in Wichita, Kansas. Anderson versus Kaufman in round one. This hurts. Seeing this makes me want to throw on some swim trunks, light up a cigarette, climb up the diving board ladder, and jump in a pool of my own existential crisis, <laughs> which is why I voted for Anderson. We've all been there, John. Yeah. C.B. Shama said this is like comparing 
sharing a prize-winning pumpkin and the winner of the Pulitzer. I'll take Kaufman's cerebral and entertaining meaning-of-life storytelling over Anderson's window dressing every time. A little harsh, but that was similar thinking that justified my vote of Charlie Kaufman. Meg wrote in, I agonized over this more than is probably healthy. Finally went Wes Anderson after the godsend of a realization that Kaufman had written my favorite movies of his, not directed them, and Wes had done both. So, on a technicality, Wes Anderson, that did come up in the forum and a few other places. Kaufman has made two great movies, directed to, in my mind, really good movies in Anomalisa and Synecdoche, New York. Those two, coupled with his writing work, justified him being on this list. But some people did see that as a little bit of a technicality, that his best stuff, the stuff people really adore, was his work as a screenwriter. Well, and maybe that's why Wes won this with 72%, because I didn't think it would be closer than that until oh, I realized the film Rushmore, the Royal Tenenbaums. There's a lot of love for Wes Anderson out there. Yeah, I know. I know. It just made me a little nervous. Okay. Matchup number 10, Kelly Reichert versus Guillermo del Toro. James Locke writes, it pains me to say this, but I think del Toro's best films, which granted I think include one of the best films of this century, he didn't say which one though, may be behind him. Probably Pan's Labyrinth? I'm assuming. Okay. I have to go with Reichert because I think that's where there's more potential for another masterpiece going forward. Reichert, this was an easy one for me. Reichert got my vote. You went Del Toro? No, I. it was tough for me. Okay. Um, as a Crimson Peak fan, yes. even, there aren't many of us, but uh, I did end up going with Reichert. Alas, she's out. She is out. 65% to Reichert's 35%, and this was actually another upset. Probably shouldn't have been. This is probably where the selection committee needs to be slapped on the wrist <laughs> a little bit, but Reichert was a higher seed. I thought with Meek's cutoff and the glowing reviews we've given to her work over the years that maybe somehow she would actually eclipse Del Toro, but a lot of love out there for Guillermo. He did win 65 to 35. That means the round two matchup is Del Toro versus Wes Anderson. So I'm clearly voting for Anderson, and you're clearly drawing upon your Pacific Rim love to vote for Del Toro, aren't you? How dare you? I'm voting Wes Anderson. Nice. Now, Thank you. Now, if Reichert had won, would like have been I tougher she for would, you. It would have been tougher, and I would have voted Reichert. I really would have voted Kelly Reichert. I'm sad to see her You didn't have to tell go. me that. I mean, <laughs> we were, we we were getting along so well, and I just ruined it. But I am voting Wes Anderson in round two. Matchup number 11, David Fincher versus Pedro Almodovar. Sorry, I was I was just scrolling down to see how many. Oh yeah, we're only we matchup eleven. Only five more to go after Jeez. this one, Josh. And and hey, after this, it all gets pared down. We'll fly through these in future shows. That's true. David Fincher versus Pedro Almodovar. Ryan Moncrief from Jackson, New Jersey, said I was upset by the lack of Noah Baumbach, but I got over it. Nichols Haynes was tough, but I made a choice. However, pitting Fincher against Almodovar is by far one of the meanest things you guys have done. Although The Social Network is my favorite film that either director has made, I feel like I would be doing myself and the cinematic universe a disservice if I didn't pick Almodovar. Still going to lose some sleep over it, though. I didn't lose much sleep over this. Neither did you. I went Fincher all the way. You went Almodovar. I did. All the way, and you lost. I... Only 21%. <laughs> Listeners went hardcore for Fincher. There it is, 79%. Could have predicted that one. Yeah. Number 12. Oh, here we go. Richard Linklater versus Sofia Coppola. Sarah said there were a few difficult decisions in the rest of the matchups, but this one was the gut punch for me. Coppola's films, especially her first three, which came out when I was 16, 20, and 23, are cultural and personal touchstones for me. But Before Sunrise is one of the clearest memories I have of seeing a movie for the first time and thinking, yes, this. 
It helped me understand the possibilities of film beyond my previous understanding of what movies were. Getting to look back in on Celine and Jesse over the years has been one of the great pleasures of my movie-going life, and the trilogy is truly a unique achievement. So I had to close my eyes while clicking on Linklater's name, because as much as Coppola's films have meant to me, I just refuse to live in a world without Celine and Jesse. Yeah, and maybe we'll get more Celine and Jesse, and that's enough for me to vote for Linklater, though I have many other reasons that would explain why I voted for him. And I'm a fan of Coppola's work overall, so it's nothing against her, but an easy one for me. You went with Coppola in this one. And again... You were on the losing side. Only 24% for Coppola. Linklater took it with 76%. We heard from Brent as well, who said, Before Sunrise changed my life. And I think there were a lot of listeners when they were voting were thinking about really good movies like Lost in Translation and The Virgin Suicides, but they just couldn't help but think about the before trilogy. Yeah, this this was a really tough one. And I'll be able to make up for my uh, dissing of Linklater because I'm going to vote for him in this round against Fincher. Oh, man, this is another one. The round two matchup. This is brutal. This, this is probably is... harder for you than me. <sighs> I mean, Linklater versus Fincher. Okay, I'm going to do this so live on air. So I'm difficult to into compare a the two. I'm walking into a theater. Linklater on one title, Fincher on the other. Which theater do I walk into? Because you can't predict what either one is going to do next. That's it. So That's it's hard. It. You can't even envision what that movie would be. I know I'm not helping you here. You know but... what? It's Fincher. Why? I don't know. It just is. I don't want to think about it too much. I just don't. That was my gut. Okay. About three in the morning, you'll come up with your reason. (laughs) I will. Matchup number 13, and I'll call you. Cone Brothers versus Abbas Kirostami. Aaron Martin in Lexington, Kentucky wrote in, it's a shame that this is a first round matchup. When your last two entries are certified copy and like someone in love, it would be crazy to vote against you. Then you see No Country for Old Men, Inside Lewin Davis and Hale Caesar on the other side. How are you not interested in the next venture from either of these candidates? Two cruel guys, Kirostami and a heartbreaker. Chris Massa also weighed in on this one. Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple. <laughs> much better line reading. But I'm not going to debate. I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. I'm just going to ask myself how much I've ever lost in a coin toss and vote for that Barton Fink feeling. Wow, it's hitting them all here. You know, for the kids. I mean, really, Chris Massa just won Film Spotting Madness. Forget Nicely any of the directors. Done. Well, well played. The results then, Josh, the most crushing defeat, the widest margin here. Unfortunately for Mr. Kiristami. 92% for the Coens. As time goes by, as time goes by, I said he's washed up. He's finished. He's a loser. He's all through. But you know what? The only ones who are going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. Matchup number 14, Steve McQueen versus Darren Aronofsky. And for a while, this was the tightest matchup we had. It ended up being the second closest margin of victory here. McQueen versus Aronofsky. Chris Massa, again, this would be a lot harder if Aronofsky hadn't just dropped Noah on us or if McQueen had at least one less than stellar film in his resume. But that's not the case. McQueen is three for three, while Aronofsky is all over the place. Finally, I win one. McQueen got 52% of the vote. That means the round two matchup, finally one I don't have to think about too hard. No. It's not going to keep me up at all. As much as I do respect McQueen's work, I do feel like he has one less than stellar film, and it's shame despite it featuring my guy, film spotting madness champion Michael Fassbender. But 
Hunger is fantastic. 12 Years a Slave, very good. Obviously, the Coen brothers for me, they're up there with my favorite directors of all time. Yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have seen McQueen last a little bit longer in the tournament, but this is one of those matchups that doesn't, at least at this point, really matter. Mm. It might, maybe in the championship. (laughs) Matchup number 15, another one that was a barn burner, and that's actually appropriate, perhaps, to discuss Terrence Malick using the phrasing barn burner. We'll see as we get into our top five Malick images here in a little bit. He's going against Werner Herzog, the nature matchup here, the Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King philosophies of nature here in round one. Kayla Brown said you put two of the greatest directors of all time together in the first round? Question mark? That's it. A lot of anger about these two facing each other in the first round, including from Robert Lewis. Really, Herzog and Malik in the first round? That would be like putting Kansas and North Carolina together in the first round, or Duke and Kentucky. Nate says, just curious, how did you guys construct your bracket? (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the world of college basketball, the highest and lowest seeded teams are paired, and then they just continue to pair up working towards the center of the field. I understand it is an extremely subjective undertaking to seed or rank all these directors, And yeah, we're just going to cut you off right there, Nate. Thank you. (laughs) Do not question the selection committee. (laughs) No, you can because we deserve it. But we're just not going to wade in too much further than that. We will share with you Mass's take. I think he just deserves his own nickname here for this segment. Terrence Malick should win the bracket and keep making movies, but they should all be narrated by Werner Herzog. Problem solved. That is perfect. He did it again. That is perfect. I mean, who would would turn that down? Malick making all of his films in collaboration with Herzog. How did the results come out, Josh? 53% for Herzog. Another one I lost. Yeah, he beat Malik. 53-47 ended up being the second tightest first round matchup. And it was our last upset there. Herzog actually seated well below Terrence Malik, who maybe was seated too high in this tournament. I'll say this. He was a top 10. Herzog in the bottom 10. Or maybe seated, unfortunately, at the time that Knight of Cups came out. Yeah, maybe. Which has some defenders, but mostly has been met with disappointment. Still, I wonder if, as we talk about film spotting directors, going back to our marathon in 2006, where a lot of listeners really discovered his work, along with me and Sam at the time, he's one of those guys, kind of like Nichols and like Ryan Johnson, and maybe he should have been a little higher seated in this one. Nevertheless, he wins. He advances over Terrence Malick. That brings us to our final pairing steven soderbergh versus Catherine bigelow here's the mass a minute steven soderbergh keeps threatening to retire from making movies so this may actually be a choice between Catherine bigelow and the end of cinema as we know it so yeah i have to go with bigelow tom labarth unfortunately for mr soderbergh i think too many film spotting listeners will make the mistake of believing he has left film forever to pursue the possibilities of the long form but the possibility that soderbergh will hear the siren call of cinema and give us another perfect film is enough reason for him to go through to the Sweet 16. I agree, Josh. You did not agree. You went Bigelow. I did, I but not not because I thought Soderbergh was retired. Okay. I just I know for some people that doesn't help my case. But <laughs> Soderbergh takes it 62% to 38%. Our final round two matchup then is Steven Soderbergh versus Werner Herzog. That being said, I'm going with Herzog. Of course you are. You're going Herzog on this one. And wow. Wow. It's another just absolutely brutal one. I'm, you know, I'm going Soderbergh and moving on. No, yeah, no, no, I am. No, no. Re, yeah. Do the theater thing. I am in my head right now, Josh, and I'm going Soderbergh. I don't believe that. We made it through. We waited through all the matchups, the results, the round two matchups. You can play now at filmspotting.net. That's where you vote. It's right there in the top stories. You can see the full bracket, see who won. You can see who advanced and vote 
in those round two matchups. And of course, it's not too late to introduce your non-film spotting friends to the show. You don't even have to ask them to listen to the show. I mean, come on, let's be real. That would be nice. That's an investment. That would be nice. But just invite them to take part in the madness. Go to the voting page, see those round two matchups, see the Sweet 16. Next week, we will announce the Elite Eight. And we have to note this. We know a lot of listeners do listen to the show when it's released via podcast right away over the course of the weekend, but some people get a week behind or two weeks behind. We end up taping these shows fairly early in the week. So the show comes out on Friday. We have to pull the results Monday or Tuesday, usually. So go to our website. If you're not an early listener of the show, go right to the site. See the matchups there. Be sure to participate. We want your vote to count. More random ranking ahead as Adam and I share our favorite images, not scenes, not moments, but images from the movies of Terrence Malick. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. From the broken window of your room We watch the tower kiss the halo of the moon Somewhere in a field of our friends You left my favorite shirt Hi, my name's Steve Coogan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Put your finger over it. Look at that. Come on. This is Film Spotting. That was a clip from The Tree of Life, specifically Josh Larson's number one Terrence Malick scene from our episode 442 back in April 2013, a tie-in with his then-current release to The Wonder. We shared our top five Terrence Malick scenes, The Brothers with the BB Gun from The Tree of Life. And I actually could have done the top five Terrence Malick scenes, picked them all from The Tree of Life. Yeah, me too. His his clear masterpiece for me. Me too. And it's only going to show up once on this list, too, though. I held I myself in check. I did, too. Okay. And that was really the biggest challenge here. We will certainly talk more about that. We are sharing our top five Terrence Malick images. We had intended to do this last week as a tie-in with our review of Night of Cups, a movie that, unfortunately, neither of us were too enamored with. But it's a good thing that we're devoting this kind of attention to Malick, since he's clearly not making another film besides the ones that are already in the can and slated for release this year after losing to Werner Herzog in Film Spotting Madness. He's done. We That's have to, true. We have to appreciate what we have. We have to go enforce that retirement on him now. That's it. So we're going to appreciate Terrence Malick here with this top five and... 
Speaking of those scenes, we didn't want to have too much overlap. We think those scenes stand on their own. Josh, do you want to quickly recap your top five sure. so listeners know what images we did try to avoid? Yeah. So the brothers with the BB gun, that was my number one. At number two, I had the fields catching fire in Days of Heaven. Almost regretted that I picked that as a scene because I would have loved to have had oh. it here for this list. Dino Mercy, I called that moment another one from the Tree of Life. I guess I did have two on here, huh? Everyone who's seen it knows what I mean by that. Running from the tide into the wonder. This one could have been almost more an image. It's just a real quick shot of Olga Kirilenko running along in the shallows there. And my number five was the treehouse hideout scene from Badlands, which was your number one. Yeah, I forgot that we had that overlap. That was my number one from Badlands. Number two, I went with the innocence montage or the birth to boy sequence from the Tree of Life. I had the locust plague, which really directly ties into what you were saying about the fields catching fire, right? That's mm-hmm. that's why they're lighting them on fire in Days of Heaven. The return to Jamestown in the New World, and then my number five was the dinner table fight from the Tree of Life. So, so we did both double Yeah, and I tried to spread it out a little bit more this time because, as we both said, probably could have gone with all Tree of Life images and figured that would be a little bit boring. One of the things we both did, it turns out, separate from each other, without talking about this, was come up with an approach, as one or both of us is wont to do from time to time with these top fives. Do you want to explain how you decided to approach this top five, any kind of rules you put in place, if that's even the right term? And we'll see how much overlap we had. Yeah, and I really needed this on this particular list. I mean, we needed an extra week to even put this together because it was such a formidable challenge. I thought, okay, Malik is a filmmaker who revisits themes or recurring ideas Mm -hmm. in every one of his films uh, very clearly. So I thought just one possible way to order this, to make this manageable, would be to try to narrow down maybe five of those themes that I think are among the most prominent and then choose an image representative of each. So Mm -hmm. it maybe skews things a little bit in terms of order or what I might say is my, you know, favorite Malik image, but it was the only way I could go about doing it. Maybe the only way to really categorize all of these and wrestle with them is to come up with some kind of organizing principle. I'm right there with you. And so what I'm curious about, because we did do this separate from each other, is whether or not we identified the same motifs. Yeah, they'll probably be, well, 10. (laughs) We both see Terrence Malick completely differently. I'm going to guess that's actually not going to happen. But I have to give a little shout out to one of our listeners, Greg F., on Twitter who said, it's just going to be you guys talking about the little foot for an hour, isn't it? <laughs> I saw <And> that. <laughs> I wanted so badly to go with that image of the little foot. It is the image from the Tree of Life mm-hmm. on the poster, but that would fall in. That's my excuse. It would fall in with the innocent sequence I went with as one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. So I had an out for that one, but I'll get to another image related to that one, maybe in our honorable mentions. Let's start with your number five then, and I guess one of your five motifs. He's the juggle apples. He is to amuse us. He is to entertain us. What else do I get into today? In fact, all three of us been going places, looking for things, searching for things, going on adventures. All right, so it's the farm gate, the, the arch, you could say, 
in Days of Heaven. And it appears a couple times in the film. I'm thinking of early on when Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, and Linda Manns first arrive by that wagon train to this prosperous farm that's in the Texas panhandle. It's where they're going to find work. There are wheat fields in this shot as as far as the eye can see, except for this elaborate two-story arched gate that's over the wagon path. And it has these decorative turrets as well. You, you wouldn't think, you know, it's much more than just a purposeful gate there. Um, it really seems to be marking its place. And this is on the left side of the screen, kind of in the foreground, and the wagons are passing through it. Way off in the distance then, in the far right corner of the screen, is the farmer's mansion. And it's really the only other sign of human activity. Otherwise, it's just this expanse of wheat. So this made me think of this theme or this idea of Eden that Malik returns mm-hmm. to so often. And uh, just this sense that the world was once a place of peace, of beauty, and prosperity. Now, you might think, and it would have been appropriate to pick one of his many nature images to represent Eden. That is a way I could have gone. But I like how this gate and the farmhouse work because they capture the idea of cultivation that ties into the Garden of Eden. So this place where humanity can steward and enjoy the fruits of the earth. I think that for these three wanderers, the the main characters... That's what this farm, at least at this point in the story, does represent. It's it's like a, a promised land to them mm-hmm. this early on. Uh, should also note the cinematographer that uh, Malik is working with here, and that's Nestor Almendros. And, the Wexler. Yeah, Haskell Wexler as well. Yep. And I, it's sometimes it's hard when he is working with a couple of cinematographers. There's another film where he worked in Badlands, Badlands with a number with of, them, of them, who did what shot. But here, though, you know, the gate and the field just burnished by this setting sun, and mm. it's absolutely gorgeous. There may be more on Days of Heaven, and specifically that arch you're speaking of on my list, but that is not my choice for number five. I have an image from The New World, a movie that I rank among Malick's best. I think I have it as my fourth favorite Terrence Malick film, maybe even third, actually, ahead of Days of Heaven. You really need to revisit this one. I'll admit I do. It's ranked last for me. Yeah, wow, I love this movie, and as obvious as it sounds, What's so difficult with this top five is when you're picking images out of a movie, you really are taking something that isn't still. You're almost plucking it out of time because it's moving through the camera. These are not photographs. But with Malik in particular, the camera's always moving, right? So it's hard to get those still shots because that's one of the key identifiers of his work. The fact that especially lately, the camera is always in motion. My number five is one case where even in this film, the camera settles down a little bit. And one of the motifs, I maybe went a little bit even more specific with these motifs than you did, simply water, how much Mm. water we see and whether you want to talk about it in terms of rebirth imagery or purity or whatever water may signify on film. He uses a lot of water. Characters are constantly going out into the ocean. They are submerging themselves in the water, whatever it may be. Sometimes there are sequences that are completely poetic, like in The Tree of Life, where it's truly birth imagery, where all of a sudden their house is underwater and you see a bear floating and a character rising up through it. That's not really happening. But in the new world, we have John Smith, Colin Farrell, and Pocahontas, who are really in the full flush of their courtship, and they are out in the water. And Malik actually just settles the image on the two of them, kind of diagonal from each other, with John Smith more in the background, Pocahontas in the foreground. And that 
camera, the way it is still, it focuses on that physical space between them. And what I've noticed in scanning through his films and prep for this list is a lot of times when these characters are in the water, if they're not just frolicking on a beach, they are wholly submerged in the water. And they really are. It's just their heads that are above the water. And of course, just aesthetically, there are four planes here to the image. I love the fact that we get Pocahontas, we get John Smith, then in the background, Behind him, even, a good distance behind him, we see three men, it looks like, from her tribe who are fishing in the water, who are gathering food behind them in the distance mountains. So your eye has a lot to look at in this frame. But more than that, Josh, for me, it's about what the image says and how it relates to a lot of the themes in his work. And we get the spiritual, we get the romantic what's happening between these two characters, almost as if it is happening literally and figuratively separately from everything else that is happening in this world with this tribe. But that's grounded against the practical with the real. Malik can't help but frame right between them in this shot those three men on that boat who are not thinking of these extra-worldly things. They're thinking of this world, and they're thinking of what they need to eat tonight. And he is constantly, I think, contrasting that type of imagery and those types of themes in his work. And I liked it too, Josh, honestly, because if you look at the image, it's the only one on my list that I think if you just quickly glanced at it, you wouldn't necessarily think of it as beautiful. And it turns out that was by design a little bit. Emmanuel Lubetsky worked with him on this film. And in an interview I found, he mentioned that they had some rules to how they shot this film. And one of them was they were going with only natural light. They wanted to avoid lens flares. They wanted to avoid primary colors. The most important thing was to never underexpose their images, but they wanted all the blacks in there. They wanted some murkiness. There's a lot that isn't murky about the new world. We get some of those classic Malick shots at the magic hour and some of the the light really coming through and pervading all the imagery. But an image like this is one where it doesn't have that. It is a little bit darker, but I think that gives it its own unique beauty. We're going to go from water to fire for my number four. I think I think cinema's, you know, the purest poets, the visual poets you think of, maybe Andre Tarkovsky would be one of these. He's drawn to fire and features it in a lot of his films. Malik does this as well. He employs it even in his first film in Badlands. And that's my number four image is the burning dollhouse mm. in Badlands. This is loosely based on a lovers on the lamb killing spree that took place in the late 1950s. The first murder here in Malik's dramatization is that of the girl's father. The girl's played by Sissy Spacek. And she and her older lover, played by Martin Sheen, they try to cover up her father's murder by burning his house so that it looks like a suicide. This is a real inferno. I mean, it's it's all consuming. And uh, Malik captures that with a combination. There are some, some wider shots of rooms, entire rooms going up in flames. And then you'll get this poignant close-up of a certain item. So the dollhouse is one of these. And you know, you could say it's almost too obvious for the symbolism that it holds, but there are just so many layers mm-hmm. going on in this quick shot. You have the perceived youthful innocence of the SpaceX character totally. that's going up in flames, yep. right? You have this loss of comfort and shelter because SpaceX and Sheen, they're, they're going to go on the run. And at one point, they do live in the woods, you know, without a home, without shelter. And also, this is a really recurring one, too, for Malik, is the decimation of family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that in a number of films. So all of this, you know, Choose Fire or the idea I had around these images was one of brokenness, that um, things are just wrong in some way. And here is like they're they're really wrong. They're, they're out of control in this 
image. Mm. Now, as I mentioned, there are three cinematographers here, so I wasn't able to verify which one shot this scene, but uh, the movie began with Tech Fujimoto, and then the other two were Steven Larner and Brian Proben. Great choice. I love that imagery. I love the imagery of the house itself, the actual house going up in flames I as well. I think that that's very too. suggestive beyond just the obvious that it's a house on fire. I think it really gets into the nature of their relationship in some ways as well. My number four, though, is going to go back to your arch from Days of Heaven. And we had the same motif, though I had two that overlap with this number four pick, Fire is part of this image. So Malik is always dealing with the elements and just the basics of nature. But I didn't think of it so much in terms of Eden as I did just a more practical level, Josh, doorways. Malik loves to shoot doorways. You see this a ton in Night of Cups even. He loves to shoot characters opening doors, going through doors. (laughs) I mentioned that other shot from the Tree of Life underwater. That's the house submerged upside down going up through a doorway. I think for Malik doorways are like portals to another universe. And I'll get back to that. But the image I'm going with in particular is that same arch, but it's much later in the film after they're not just arriving now, they're on their way out. Everything has gone wrong. For people who haven't seen Days of Heaven, they have been cast out of whatever Eden they have been living in. And of course, this whole film famously was shot at the magic hour. And this is really the very end of the magic hour. It's just on its face, a gorgeous image, right? Three layers of color, the dark ground, the very dark ground at the bottom of the image, this middle band of light where the sun is still just peeking through, and then these clouds up above what dominate the image. There's blue, there's purple, there's orange, and then we see that fire. And you're right, fire imagery in Malik, along with water, those basic elements in nature come through again and again. And we see here literal ashes around them, smoke going up, the fire, as they are going through the arch. And I just love the fact that this arch now, unlike how it is in the image you talked about, Josh, early on, it's clearly crumbling, and yet they're going out through the arch as if it's still somehow a structure that has any significance whatsoever, right? Like they're entering something or exiting something that has any consequence. And at this point, it doesn't. And it's one of those clashes, again, in the imagery, just like I talked about the practical and mundane versus the spiritual in the new world. Here, it's really this clash of order and chaos, as if there was this sense of civility when they came through that arch. And now it's been broken down completely, and yet they still go out through it, as if they're somehow clinging to that sense of order. And I mentioned those doorways as portals. It feels like some kind of void they're entering as they exit this estate. They are being cast out of some form of paradise. And I like how fragile, too, when you talk about it as a marker of civilization, how fragile that civilization exactly is. yeah, yeah. This, this is a great one and i love that we both had the gate so for my number three one theme that rests at the heart of nearly every malik film and i think it was probably stated one of my reservations is that it's stated so broadly in night of cups but it's this idea of human duality right that the mm-hmm. same person can be both kind and loving and cruel and hateful and that they're always wrestling with this i think young jack in the tree of life he riffs on paul in the new testament and, and captures it really well He says, what I want to do, I can't do. I do what I hate. So I'm going to stick with the tree of life here for my number three pick and this idea of human duality. And the representative image is going to be, this one's, you know, incredibly nuanced, I think. It's almost a throwaway shot. It's 
the one of the boys' shadows on the street oh, as yeah. they're running around. It's at very play. quick, very, very quick. quick. Yeah, and and but yet it's like the definitive one of me for the tree of life, despite all all those others you mentioned that mm-hmm. we could have picked from. A listener also picked this one out. Connor Kelly suggested it on Twitter. The use of Sun and Shadow here is just jaw-droppingly beautiful. The cinematographer, again, is Emmanuel Lubetsky, but it's also a jarring image, and maybe now is a good time to point out we're going to post these images themselves yeah. on the website, on the show notes page. So if you're able to maybe take a glance at them as we're talking, might it'll be a help. little, a little <laughs> help as you listen to this. Yeah. The other hand, if you've seen Malik's films, probably a lot of these are coming to mind instantly as we're, as we're discussing them. So this one of the shadows, it's upside down. Right. Mm-hmm. So the feet of these boys at play are oddly poking up from the bottom of the screen. And so that means their shadows really dominate the frame and they're right side up. So it's like the shadows are the actual people. And in so many ways, I just I love how this speaks to the idea that each of us has a light and a shadow. And then life is just this struggle to achieve some sort of balance or, or equilibrium among them. Yeah, it is so striking. And I don't know if you did this, but I went back and scanned through this movie to see what images really stood out. And it was so hard. It was just so hard, as we already alluded to, because I think the movie is truly full of them. And mm-hmm. his films are always full of great images, but The Tree of Life is really every shot in and, the movie strikes and every me shot that way. matters. Yeah, every so shot much. matters. And what's really fascinating about that one is I assumed that that was just a shot that occurred in the chronology, if you will, though mm-hmm. it's a very nonlinear movie, during that kind of uh, innocence sequence where it's them as young boys and it's Malik just giving us an evocative image of them at play. If I'm remembering it correctly, as I looked through it a couple of days ago, it's actually during one of the more early sequences where they have found out that their son has died. Brad Pitt has come home. Ooh, Jessica yeah. Chastain is actually, it's almost as if, even though it's not set up this way, she's having a flashback. I'd have to go back and look at it again, but I really yeah, I recall it offhand. as an image where they're kind of standing out in their driveway. The neighbors have come to visit. The neighbor is talking to them about their son. And in a moment, in a flash, Malik shows us this image as if it was something that was haunting her, coming back to her. It very well could be, because as you said, the movie is so nonlinear. I also wonder if it's from that sequence where the trucks are going through the neighborhood spraying the DDT Mm -hmm. or or whatever it was, um, which I also considered. Because, again, the the kids playing in this deeply unhealthy fog is just such a complicated image as well. It is. Well, speaking of fogs, we'll go to The Fog of War for my number three, World War II and Malik's The Thin Red Line, the movie that, according to film spotting listeners, I don't appreciate enough. But I remember seeing it only once when it came out and just finding it so puzzling. And I think it was my first Terrence Malick film, actually. I didn't Mm. watch his movies in order. I just remember everyone talking about this comeback, this amazing comeback, and me being a budding cinephile and thinking, well, I have to go see this movie. And I wasn't prepared for it. And maybe I would be more equipped now, but I feel about this movie the way you talk about the new world. Okay. There are some stunning, stunning images, though. And going back to the motifs, for lack of a better way to phrase it, I think of one of his motifs as simply being the cosmos trying to depict and showing us imagery of other worlds, of outer space. It isn't just in the Tree of Life, but primarily in the Tree of Life, where we get an entire sequence that shows us it's literal. the beginning of man. It's quite literal. But here it's not literal, and yet he finds a way to capture it in nature, I think. And I'll try to explain. Ross Miller via Twitter, a listener, actually pointed out this image to me, one I might have 
skipped right past if I hadn't seen his tweet. John Toll was the cinematographer on The Thin Red Line. It really is the hardest one for me to try to articulate my response to it. But it's this shot of three leaves from the ground, it looks like, the ground up. And you see behind them these rays of light, the sun just permeating the holes in the leaf. And going back to The New World or many of his films, this familiar theme dominates this movie of man versus nature and there being a sort of purity in the life away from the modern struggles of man. And this is just nature. This is not outer space. But there's something heavenly for sure when you look at this image and you see that light in the sun piercing through the holes. But for me, Josh, the microscopic clarity, almost microscopic clarity to the leaves makes them appear almost like they're their own galaxy. That's how I see it. Yeah, them. it looks like the Milky Way. Almost. Yeah, that's it. That's right. It mirrors some of the same shots we get, especially in The Tree of Life, that are actually about space. With Malick's films, he does make you focus on nature. He forces you to see it not just as this accessory that we all move around in, this space that we take for granted every day, but it becomes its own universe. And these leaves are much smaller in scale to us, of course, but they are just as busy and just as intricate as the worlds we construct. And the fact that Malik takes time out and his eye hones in on that type of imagery and really does create galaxies out of imagery that we see every day and don't view at all as special. That's really what I think is so special about the majority of Malik's work. My number two comes from a film that you're probably not going to pull from, To the Wonder, because I know this is one I like quite a bit and you're not as high My on. least favorite, Matt. Your least favorite. Okay. Well, I chose the shot of the janitor's hand placed on the stained glass here in To the Wonder. I think that you know, seeking, searching, yearning for God takes place in almost every Malick movie. And it's probably most explicit in this film because it has that subplot with Javier Bardem as a doubting priest. And at one point, this priest is talking to the janitor who's cleaning the church's stained glass windows. And he's actually mostly just listening to the janitor because the guy's rambling along here. I think he's played by Tony O'Gans. I couldn't quite tell in the credits because there weren't matching photos. But at one point, this janitor, he, he fixes his gaze on the priest, puts his hand against the sunny stained glass and slows down a little bit as he tries to explain the difference between the natural light, as he calls it, and spiritual light. So what you got to say about it? Got to have a little more excitement, just like when me and you were around, you know, and ain't nobody around. Just, hey, the power hit you, brother. It always hit me. You can just say, hey, power, and it hit me. Or hit me before I can get it out. See, the devil don't know what I'm saying, and you won't know, or I won't know. Yeah, I can feel the warmth of the light, brother. That's spiritual, you know. I'm feeling more than just natural light. Feeling the spiritual light, see. I can almost touch that light. I think this is a really good description for how Malik tries to depict God in his movies when he does that. And, and this is one of his favorite subjects and themes. It, he doesn't employ dogma or tradition quite so much. It's more like this frustratingly elusive presence that's best sensed in the nooks and crannies of the world. And so maybe in the way that sunlight is filtered here through the colored glass or similar places that Malik delicately captures with his camera. This is Lubezki again in uh, To the Wonder and just gets some amazing stuff, including mm. this shot. My number two, I'm going way back to Malik's debut film, Badlands. And the motif here that we have talked about nature, obviously, a ton already. 
the motif isn't just like with the new world where we have characters existing in nature or like with my last choice from the thin red line where we are just seeing nature being captured in some way. But Malik obviously as well loves to shoot landscapes and loves to shoot men against those landscapes, almost as if they are pondering all their existential questions, the big existential questions, or not, in the case of this character, Kit, perhaps, as they stare out at whatever they're looking at. And in this case, they're in the prairie. The magic hour again, it's the end of the day, the sun's going down, but it's the way he shoots Martin Sheen against that backdrop of the sunset. It's the scarecrow imagery Mm -hmm. is really what it is, where Kit has a rifle, he's got his gun behind his neck against his shoulders and his arms over that, and that really is what he looks like. He looks like a scarecrow as he's in silhouette against that sky, and as dumb as this sounds, I looked up the definition of the word scarecrow today because it's not as if I have a whole lot of experience with them. And of course, it told me that it's a decoy or a mannequin that's in the shape of a human, usually dressed in old clothes. And you think about Kit in that movie, it's probably not an accident that he staged him in that way out in this field. He's a decoy himself. He's a fake man. I think if you watch that film, you realize that he is someone who is basically trying to figure out who he is, what he stands for, And just trying to have some idea how he functions in the world. And what we see is he really doesn't function in the world at all. And as ineffectual as he is, his lack of purpose can actually be pretty scary. Unlike Scarecrows, that gun is the giveaway. There are actual consequences to his inability to find his place in the world. He does actually hurt people. But even if you knew nothing about this film and you just looked at that image, like so many of these we're talking about, it stands on its own, I think, is just a gorgeous shot. For sure. But you asked, you could ask that question, what is Kit thinking here? And I think that's the scary thing about this character. He's thinking about opposed, his own grandeur. Or, or, is, or is he not thinking about anything? Maybe. I mean, you know, the guy's essentially a sociopath, right? And so that stands in contrast with so many Malik characters who are pondering the weight of the universe. And here's a guy early on who may be just a blank slate. Yeah, he could be a blank slate. (laughs) Or what I was alluding to, in his films, I wrote this down in my notes that made no sense about Knight of Cups, the sense of characters humbling themselves against these landscapes. And Kit doesn't humble himself for anybody. Yeah, for sure. All right, we're at number one. And for this pick, I tried to think of how Malick's movies also often include a vision of the future. So this hopeful depiction, it's not heaven so much as this world made anew or made right. So I like to think of this theme as glory. And the best image that came to mind for this one, it was also suggested by listener Joel Mayward on Twitter, is that shot in the thin red line of a single sprouting seed that's in the shallows of Guadalcanal. So as you said, this is Malik's World War II picture. John Toll is the cinematographer here. And it is largely juxtaposing the horrors of the battle on the island uh, with its pristine beauty. So this shot, I think, uses natural detail to suggest this sense of, in opposition to that, all that fighting and warfare, is this idea of renewal and restoration. I'm not sure if this is a a palm tree seed or something else. It's about the size of a baseball, I'd say. Then it has this good maybe 10-inch green sprout that's sticking out of it. But then you have it all alone amidst the vastness of these shallows. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you see even greater vastness beyond, like you were talking about in the New World image. There are these planes of focus going on here. And so it really gives 
this small seed, a, a sense of being you know, both desolate and defiant at the same time. You hear a lot of people, Malik skeptics, writing him off as a nature photographer, yeah. right? That that's all he does. And sure, it looks nice, but um, we've seen him do it so many times. But I think that's really not giving enough credit to to the symbolic and thematic weight that he gives to images simple as as this, you know, seed sitting here in the water. And that is the closing image yeah. of that film. Yeah, pointing forward. Of, yeah, pointing forward, even after all this death and carnage that we've seen again, more of those clashes in the imagery from Terrence Malick. My number one is definitely an image from the Tree of Life, the key question, as we've said here many times, was really what image I was going to go with. And in terms of his motifs and me really kind of focusing on not even so much symbolic ones, but just what's happening in the frame, physically what's happening, I wanted to go with an image, and this one just worked perfectly, where we saw how much Malik likes to focus on embraces. He loves to show hands interlocking with each other, people putting their hands on each other. And as much as Malik is a filmmaker who is about nature and loves to shoot these landscapes and Paradise Lost and all that stuff, I really think what makes him a special filmmaker and why I appreciate his film so much is the fact that he really is more focused on how humans connect and disconnect in the world in these landscapes. And the image I'm focusing on here is one where Brad Pitt as the father is walking back to the house with his son, Jack, and he's got his hand right around his neck. Again, the sun going down just purely aesthetically. It's the magic hour. There's that yellowish orange glow to it. The trees are all around their house and it's clearly fall. You see the leaves on the ground and the way it's framed from a composition standpoint, is perfect, right? Where they're walking and the sun is going down dead center between them behind the house. And even I looked at the way the roads are positioned. It's kind of like they're at a fork in the road and whether or not there's some thematic tie-ins there, the reality is it's just a dynamic shot, the way the road shoots out, especially on the right side. But for me, the ambiguity of it is what is so striking. Sure, there's a warmth to the colors, but there's also something melancholy to me about the end of the day right? The light going down. And the leaves on the ground are dead leaves. The trees are losing their vitality. So amidst that warmth, there's also this sense of decay. And you talked about it in terms of that duality. This is why it's my number one. If you just took that shot out of context with Knight of Cups, I brought up the notion of the whole movie being a kind of Rorschach test where it tells you more about the person looking at the image in the way they describe it than maybe what Malik was even trying to get at in the first place, how different people would look at this embrace and respond to it. It is a moment of comfort, it seems like, a moment of compassion. It's a father touching his son on the back of his neck. But if you look closer, there's a rigidity to Pitt's arm and his hand. And it almost looks like he's pushing his son's head forward. There's a real gritty determination about it. And the look on his face, his lips are pierced. He's not smiling. He could be content, Josh, or he could be angered. He could be mad about something. So is this a happy moment between a father and son? Or is the son actually maybe being punished, which he does get punished in this movie? And he's actually being walked back home, forced by his father, and he's being reprimanded. I didn't know just based on the image itself. I had to go back to the movie and watch it in context and appropriately Josh, it turns out it's a little bit of both. He is pulling him along, pushing him forward, and is, in his dialogue, warning him. 
He's not punishing him explicitly, but he is telling the character what not to be. He is imposing a certain way of viewing the world and what he wants the kid to grow up to be like on him. And so there's something really commanding about it and actually not that compassionate about it at all. Though to that character, to that character, the father, he thinks he's being compassionate, right? And maybe that, that has to count for something. Don't let anyone tell you there's anything you can't do. Don't do like I do. Promise me that. I dreamed of being a great musician. I let myself get sidetracked. If you're looking for something to happen, that was it. That was life. You lived it. I think, too, you can see Hunter McCracken as the son. You know, he's a few steps behind mm-hmm. Pitt and how he has his hands. I'm not sure if they're in his pocket. That's below the frame, mm-hmm. but they're kind they're it's stiff. It's And they're, yeah. And I think this speaks to how you need to watch performances in Malick films as well, where the characters aren't given straight dialogue so frequently. And this is why I think Pitt is excellent in the tree of life he because is. he is a he is a physical presence first and foremost yeah. above all else and and I I defended Affleck too and to the wonder because he has a similar stolidity to him that works for what Malick was doing but but yeah just the level of performance you can see going on in this single shot on top yeah. of all the compositional elements those are our top five Terrence Malick images. We did it, Josh. I was just going to say that we made it through. <laughs> it feels like quite an accomplishment. Any. Others you want to throw in that were tough for you to leave off? I mean, I almost don't want to mention any because I'll just end up saying 25 of them. I mean, just, yeah, point to the, I think it's the DVD cover of the Tree of Life, right? That's made up of about 30 images or so, any of those. There is one from Days of Heaven that is the train. It's very early on going over this bridge that's uh, lattice, like scaffolding, and it's all in silhouette. I really wrestled with why it's such a dynamic image, and it is. I mean, it's almost just because of the geometry, really, for that one. Uh, Kit contemplating the vast landscape, I consider that one that was almost our crossover. And Knight of Cups, we talked, I think. It's funny that we both picked up on one single image, and it was that parking garage illuminated Mm -hmm. at night. So I couldn't find a place for it on this list, but it's definitely one I will always remember from his career. Yeah, that shot of the shadows from the Tree of Life and the kids on the ground, I definitely considered. I had the train in here as well. The shot of Jessica Chastain floating in the air. Oh, yeah. So bizarre. From the Tree of Life is so bizarre. I didn't get a chance to really see how that plays out in context, but I love it. And then when you posted on Twitter and said, we're doing this top five, the image you chose was that shot of the other son, the middle son, I think, from the Tree of Life, who is looking at his hand in the oh, darkness the with a flashlight. That yeah. is, I mean, we could sit here for 40 minutes and just try to unpack right. why that image is so good, but it really is. And then another one that came up on Twitter a ton, and it gets back to the geometry. It's all about the geometry. It's Jessica Chastain walking against the sort of heaven environment or whatever you want to call it in the tree of life where it's that very white sandy Mm -hmm. area and she's in the middle ground with the clouds in the distance and just something about the way there's a shadow coming off of her but it's a vertical line it reminds me a lot of kubrick actually as the line comes out towards the viewer that one captured the imagination of a lot of our listeners. And really there, I just focused on the tree of life. There are so many more that we could look at. We want to know what you think, though. Send us your top five Terrence Malick images. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net along with any other comments about the show. You can also leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744. And you just might hear it featured on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook. We're also on Twitter 
at Film Spotting is Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at FilmSpotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives while you're there. Take part in round two of Film Spotting Madness, Director's Edition. 32 directors, only one survives to direct another day. Sorry, Terrence Malick. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting SVU, and The Next Picture Show. You can find both in iTunes. Out in limited release, opening in Chicago this weekend, My Golden Days, the latest from Arnaud de Plachin. In wide release, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. I'm not going to revisit My Big Fat Greek <sighs> no, Wedding in no, preparation because I don't want to break your no. rule. Well, actually, it's because I'm not going to see my big fat Greek one, no, too. I'm probably not either. Batman v Superman. Josh is off, but he's still going to see Dawn of Justice at some point and write about it over at his website. I'm going to discuss it next week on the show with Chris Klemek. And we are still having a little bit of trouble coming up with an appropriate top five. We almost sunk to movies with verses in their title. No, come on. 578 shows, Josh. Not, Sometimes you got to scrape the bottom of the barrel. late in the game. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it might be, but I'm looking forward to your ideas, Josh. That can be your last little handout if to us. If looks like Clark off. Kent, how about top five superheroes that look like Adam Kempinar? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that That is going to take some digging. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week comes from Mason Jennings' new album, Wild Dark Metal. More information is at masonjennings.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. First round results from Film Spotting Madness. All that and more. Look out behind you, Adam. Not nice, Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Did you like the hand? Did that yeah, really scare worked. you? Yeah, it worked. It sold it. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. See, that's how you get into it. You're such a method guy. That must be it.